Picture a baseball field. Green grass, brown dirt, blue skies above. You are not in the northeast of the United States nor the west. You are in Florida. You're at spring training baseball. Let's go. Every year, all 30 of the major league baseball teams spend a few weeks getting warmed up, playing preseason games against one another to get prepared for the season ahead. 15 of the 30 teams play in Arizona in the Cactus League, and the other 15 teams head down to Florida and play all along our peninsula in the Grapefruit League. For me, going to a spring training game is a yearly tradition because luckily my favorite team plays here in Florida. I'm a Yankees fan. Sorry. We had tickets to see the Yankees play the Pirates at the beginning of March, but that got canceled due to a labor dispute. It's a whole thing. But luckily, the lockout was ended, the players got what they wanted, and the games started soon after. Our tickets were refunded, but I was very, very sad. I wanted to see my team. There is nothing like spring training. It's a wholly unique experience, especially if you grow up in Florida and go to those games more than you go to actual regular season games. I've been going to spring training games my whole life. The best part of spring training is that it's it's warm, it's sunny, it's it's sort of right at that time when the colder days are fading away, and of course the stakes are low. These games don't have any value in the bigger season, it's just to get the players warmed up, so that makes it feel like it's just a bunch of your favorite players just having fun. I was sad that I was going to miss out on it this year, and then, yesterday, literally yesterday, I got to see my team. We are in TD Ballpark in Dunedin, Florida, the spring training facility for the Toronto Blue Jays. Usually I see the Yankees in their spring training facility field, which is Steinbrenner Field in the shadow of Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. I got to see an away game yesterday, not far from the St. Joseph Sound, a few miles from the gorgeous Caladesi Island State Park, which we visited last summer for the show. Listen to the sounds of this baseball game. Yes, that is me and my mom cheering JD, JD over and over again because Josh Donaldson, the New York Yankees third baseman, hit a two-run homer to temporarily put the Yankees ahead. As you can tell, I was very excited. The Yankees lost, but it was still a fantastic game. Spring training isn't new to Florida. As early as 1913, teams like the Chicago Cubs and the now-named Cleveland Guardians began their training in Florida. Over the successive decades, more and more teams came to Florida, built stadiums to play in, and brought folks from all over to watch a game in the Florida sun. One such figure who flocked to Florida spring training games was the famous American inventor Thomas Edison. In the spring of 1927, Thomas Edison stepped up to the plate at a spring training baseball facility and cracked a line drive directly at one of the most famous baseball players in history, Ty Cobb. That's one of those facts, one of those stories that is totally true. A series of statements that all make sense out of context, but when you put it all together, it makes for a story so strange, so complicated, that you can't quite process what you're hearing. Edison, at the bat, hitting a ball, at Ty Cobb in Florida. How did that story come to be? Well, that is exactly what this episode is all about. Edison at the bat. 
I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Edison and the Athletics. How the great American inventor came to Florida, how the Philadelphia Athletics came to Florida, and how they collided one fateful spring day in 1927. We're going to break down this story part by part until we get to that day. How everybody, how all of the pieces came together on that one fateful spring afternoon. So, let's start with Thomas Edison. Born in Ohio in 1847, Thomas Alva Edison was born to Nancy and Samuel Edison, the last of the children born to that couple. He was born hard of hearing, as were a few of his relatives. It made school difficult for him. His father was a lighthouse keeper up in Michigan when Thomas was a child, and as the American Civil War approached, Thomas worked on a railroad, then became a telegrapher, meaning he was part of sending messages over telegraph via Morse code. The telegraph wasn't necessarily an audio means of messaging. It didn't necessarily require Thomas to be able to hear very well, at least at first, though we now associate the telegraph with clicking and beeping sounds, the ones you always see in in movies. But telegraphs became more and more auditory, meaning that they were putting out sounds more and more, which made it more difficult for Thomas Edison with his hearing issues. He continued to work, but his mind was puzzling on the nature of communication. How do we reach one another, especially if some of us are hard of hearing like Thomas was? He helped develop technology with other scientists that would eventually be used by Alexander Graham Bell in his invention of the telephone. But Thomas's interest in communication, interestingly considering his inability to hear, led to the creation of the phonograph. This allowed sound to be recorded on physical media, then reproduced and played back on a phonograph. Sound was not being transmitted quickly via telephone, but could be reproduced easily through this simple technology that was using carbon to record what was being produced. It was 1877, and the phonograph became Edison's first great achievement. It was this success that led to his popularity, which led to people investing in his future inventions. Soon, Thomas was working on an even grander project, harnessing electricity into something that could be used and focused as light. He created a device that could control electric power, could push the current through a bulb, and would generate light. Electric lighting was on the horizon for a long time. Despite years of effort by inventors the world over, people were working to figure out how to move on from gaslight, how to create electric light, but they weren't succeeding. Edison seemed to be the one bringing this advancement to life. He used his projects in creating light bulbs to help install power systems in Manhattan, though that faced many troubles over the years. Nevertheless, Thomas Edison was at the forefront of using electrical power to generate light, to generate communication. He was the guy to turn to. By the time he died, Edison had patented over one thousand inventions over a thousand edison though complicated in his relationship with other inventors he's often been accused of plagiarism or intellectual theft all of those things are are very complicated but nevertheless edison was a part of this industrial push as we approached the turn of the century in the 1880s thomas edison's first wife passed away he married his second wife a woman nearly two decades his junior in 1886 
He bought an estate in New Jersey and built himself a laboratory that was all his own. All of this innovation was allowing him to have great success in both his family and financial life. He continued to develop the phonograph, and in his new lab, he would help invent one of the earliest versions of a moving film camera, the kinetograph. I've seen many of the original Edison films. They are amazing. At the end of the 19th century, using a strange mechanical device that doesn't at all resemble a modern camera, simple movements and actions were being recorded and then shown on a device he created to pair with the kinetograph called the kinetoscope that projected the films that he created. Go and look up some of the Edison films. They are just outstanding to see. If you consider that many of them were made before the turn of the century, they're, they're very simple, they're very short, and frankly, they're pretty blurry, but it's film that Edison had helped create. One such event that he filmed was a baseball game back in 1898. Edison was a huge baseball fan, which we'll come back to in a moment. These were all silent films, as it was extremely difficult at the time to record and playback audio with the recorded images. That is why we did not have sound-synchronized film until the late 20s, nearly 30 years after Edison created the kinetograph. But it was only a decade or so after this device was created that famous filmmaker George Millier made the iconic short film A Trip to the Moon. You've definitely seen it. It's the one where the little rocket crashes into the moon's face. That is a pretty quick turnaround, and we have Edison to thank for bringing that innovation to life. Film was on the horizon, and Edison's innovations helped bring it to be our most prominent form of art. Around this time, Thomas Edison was looking for a vacation home, somewhere to get away from his laboratory and his estate in the north as winter approached. He was very famous probably the most famous inventor in the world, and a getaway was needed for someone with that many eyes on you. So, he went where everyone went in that era. Florida. There was a little town in Florida, noted in 1885 with a population of 349. That's hilariously small. It was called Fort Myers. Due to its proximity to the Caloosahatchee River, Fort Myers was an ideal spot for a U.S. Army encampment during the Second Seminole War in the 1830s. There were a few forts in the area for a while, Fort Delaney, Fort Harvey, but in 1850 is when it got its current name, Fort Myers, named for one Abraham Myers. Son of South Carolina, Myers was a soldier in the U.S. Army. His father-in-law, a major general in the Army, named the town Fort Myers in his honor. Abraham Myers would go on to become a lieutenant colonel in the Confederate Army. He worked in the quartermaster department, meaning he aided in providing supplies to the Confederate Army. The city itself was a major location during the Civil War, but that's a story for another day. By 1866, Fort Myers became an actual city, founded by a Spanish steamboat captain named Manuel A. Gonzalez. He owned much of the land and became the first settler in Fort Myers after the war. He set up the trading post that would help the city blossom. About 20 years later, seeking a getaway, Edison bought land built a home called Seminole Lodge, and settled in for winters in the tiny river town of Fort Myers. But he was distant from his home for many years. He built two identical homes on the property that he bought. One home was for himself, and one was for Ezra Gilliland, a partner of his from his phonograph work. But in the late 1800s, Ezra and Thomas had a huge public falling out. Thomas sued Ezra, saying that Ezra was trying to cut Thomas out of the profit for the phonograph they had worked on together. 
The suit ended in Edison losing, and their friendship was permanently fractured. Gilliland sold the house that was next to Edison's to a Standard Oil executive, the same company that fueled Henry Flagler to build his railroad along the East Coast. I'm sorry that everything comes back to Flagler. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. Anyway, Edison's public falling out with a friend, alongside yellow fever sweeping Florida in this era, led to Edison avoiding his winter estate for 14 years. Eventually, Edison reacquired the land that had once been Gilliland's, and after that considerable absence, Edison became a recurring visitor of his winter home, Fort Myers, now firmly part of the aging inventor's life. It was from his Fort Myers winter home that Edison traveled to meet up with the Philadelphia Athletics at their park in town on that spring day in 1927. That is how Edison came to Florida. Now for the Athletics. They are still a team, but currently they are called the Oakland Athletics, a great team with maybe my favorite uniform design in baseball, but the Athletics are old, a very, very old team. The game of baseball had barely been invented when the Athletics were formed. Formed initially in the years after the Civil War, the Athletics became a part of what would soon be Major League Baseball in 1901. They started in Philadelphia, and they remained a part of the Philadelphia sports community for over 50 years, quote, until 1954 when the team moved to Kansas City, end quote. The leader of this team was a man named Connie Mack. Connie Mack's real full name is actually Cornelius McGillicuddy. What a name. I mean, come on. But, you know, Connie Mack, I guess, is uh, a little easier to say. A little side note here about Connie Mack before we go forward. Connie Mack's grandson and great-grandson, named Connie Mack III and Connie Mack IV, respectively, both represented Florida in the federal government. Connie Mack III was a U.S. representative and a U.S. senator representing Florida, and Connie Mack IV was a U.S. representative for eight years. He has a son. His name is Connie Mack V. Someday we'll talk about that whole Connie Mack lineage, including its connection to the pop singer Cher. Again, a story for another day, but a fascinating one nonetheless. Look it up. Anyway, the original Connie Mack was just under 40 when he joined up with the Philadelphia Athletics as their manager. He had played for the very earliest baseball leagues for a number of years as a catcher, but when the Athletics needed a leader, a manager, Connie Mack was the man for the job. He remained in his title as manager for the Philadelphia Athletics for 50 seasons. 50. He was 87 when he retired. It was a very successful half century under Connie Mack's reign. They won their league pennant nine times and won the World Series five times. Apparently, this is according to the Athletics' current website, quote, Connie Mack was an astute judge of talent and assembled a club from Sandlots and also by, quote-unquote, raiding the Phillies, end quote. I love that. The Phillies were not even in the same league as them, but because they were both Philadelphia teams, the Athletics had something to prove. Mack was a vital and sharp manager who, when another manager called his team a white elephant, meaning they were, quote, an object no longer of value, end quote, Connie Mack adopted the white elephant as the mascot of his team. He was like, fine, if you want to call us that, that's who we are. We're the white elephant. To this very day, the Athletics wear a white elephant on their uniforms. It's their mascot. Literally, the Athletics mascot today is an elephant. All because of Connie Mack's hilarious spite. 
By 1925, as spring training had become more and more popular in Florida, the Philadelphia Athletics made their way down to Fort Myers. There was a stadium built by a local family, the Terry family, in the heart of a cow pasture. It became the Terry Park ball field and for over a decade in the 20s and 30s, the Athletics came to Fort Myers to train. But in 1927, the Athletics team looked very very different. They had just made a staggering acquisition, someone who was really going to need some training getting to know his new team. He was a man named Ty Cobb. In 1905, at the age of 18, Ty Cobb joined up with the Detroit Tigers. Originally from Georgia, he played throughout the minor leagues as a teenager in his home state and in Alabama. His early years in the major leagues were troubled with family tragedy and arguments with his teammates marring his private life, but at the age of 20, he led the Tigers to a World Series, winning the American League pennant only to lose the World Series. And then he did that again and again. For three years in a row, they won the American League pennant, made it to the World Series, and lost. He was a tremendous hitter. He recorded nearly 4,200 hits, a record that remained for nearly 60 years after his retirement. That record was beaten by Pete Rose for the baseball fans. He had an incredible career batting average, stole hundreds of bases, and even managed the Detroit Tigers for a few years while also playing on their team. Ty Cobb had over 20 seasons with an over 300 batting average. That is an unbelievable statistic. The man was a dynamo. But there's a slight hiccup in Ty Cobb's legacy. He could easily be called one of the greatest offensive baseball players in baseball history, and, and that's certainly true, but uh, offensive has uh, two meanings here, I'm afraid, because, pardon me here, but Ty Cobb was a real bastard. He was combative with his teammates, and he was, quote, known for sharpening his spikes in order to cause the most damage to opponents' legs when sliding, end quote. That is messed up up. When Ty Cobb would steal bases, he would slide in feet first with his sharp spikes in order to stab the second baseman or the third baseman or the shortstop with his cleats. What a jerk. That's horrible. Biographers after his death tried to claim that Ty Cobb was a racist and particularly said that he had negative things to say about famous black baseball players Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays, but these apparently have largely been debunked as falsifications by biographers. Ty Cobb, in his life, apparently, had nothing but warm things to say about Robinson and Mays. Nevertheless, Ty Cobb has a complicated legacy, a brutal personality, a nasty sportsman, and one of the greatest hitters of his generation, if not all, of baseball. Which is why it was a huge surprise when, after over 20 years with the Detroit Tigers, Ty Cobb signed with the Philadelphia Athletics. He had only played for the Tigers for 20 years, and now he was an athletic. Essentially, Ty Cobb had retired from the Tigers, but not of his own volition. He had been part of a cheating scandal and retired as the cheating scandal reached the courts. He wanted to keep playing, and when the case cleared Ty Cobb, he decided to sign up to play for the Athletics. Remember when I said Connie Mack was an astute judge of character? He didn't need to be. Ty Cobb was the best, and Connie Mack knew it. He played for the Philadelphia Athletics for two years, apparently hoping to prove himself one last time. 
He was 40 in his first season for the Athletics. That is a significantly high age, even for players today. There aren't many baseball players who are 40 or above. In 1927, his first year with the Athletics at the age of 40, his batting average was 357. If you're not a baseball fan, that is a fantastic batting average, though not his finest in his career. He stole 22 bases and played in 133 of the 162 games. Ty Cobb was as good at 40 as he was at 18. So now all the pieces are in place. Thomas Edison, Ty Cobb, Connie Mack. There's a few amazing photographs that were taken on this day, March 7th, 1927. Historians believe that that was Ty Cobb's first day in the Athletics uniform, the first time in over 20 years that Cobb was anything other than a Detroit Tiger. Edison, as I mentioned, was a baseball fan. He filmed that baseball game back in 1898. And it wasn't just that. Teams loved Edison and would invite him to throw out first pitches all the time. He even funded two teams in New York. Quote, at Edison Field in Brooklyn, he supported two semi-pro teams, the Edisons and the Voltas, end quote. I love that one of the teams is literally just named for him. <laughs> that's, that's very funny. Edison's cement company even provided cement to build the original Yankee Stadium. Edison is deeply connected to baseball. So, Edison, at the age of 80, came down to the Fort Myers field that day on Ty Cobb's first day as an athletic. It was a publicity stunt, no doubt. Edison brought cameras, both still and moving, to record the event. Edison wanted to take a swing, and even though Ty Cobb was not a pitcher, he decided to chuck him the ball. He stood halfway between home plate and the pitching mound because, you know, he wanted to get it to the 80-year-old batter. Ty Cobb reeled back and chucked a ball to the 80-year-old Edison. The bat connected, and the line drive hurtled at Ty Cobb. It slammed into his shoulder, and Ty Cobb collapsed to the ground. Can you imagine how tense the split second after that moment was? Remember, Ty Cobb had a temper. He could be brutal and vicious, and he was already on a redemption tour of sorts. He could throw out his whole reputation if he responded poorly. Instead, Cobb stood up, and shook Thomas Edison's hand. It's impossible to know if Ty Cobb just swallowed his pride and laughed with Edison, or if he truly found the situation amusing, but it makes for a great moment, the kind that can only exist in baseball, the most famous inventor hitting the most famous baseball player in the shoulder with a line drive. It's a classic baseball story, a myth retold however many times from whichever perspective you want it to be told. Was Edison recapturing youth as he got older, longing for excitement in his twilight days? Was Ty Cobb putting on a good face to appease his new manager and all the cameras facing his way? Who knows, but the moment exists in story. The news press included a quote at that time, published in the paper that very day, a conversation between Edison and Cobb. It's said that Thomas Edison said, quote, you'll be playing ball when you're 80, end quote. Apparently, Ty Cobb responded, I hope so. He would retire a year later at the age of 41. But you know what I love most about this story? The thing that is most entertaining about it, about Edison hitting that line drive at Ty Cobb? It might not have even happened. We don't know if it actually happened. All we have is the varied stories of it that have been reported over the years. But remember, the event was being photographed and filmed. I've seen footage of Edison and Cobb chatting on the field. There's even photos of Edison at the bat, Connie Mack sporting a glove to catch the pitches. 
I've read, as I mentioned, newspapers from the day detailing the conversation and events. In none of those is there any mention of Edison hitting Cobb in the shoulder. No footage, no photography, no quotes, no mention. An article detailing their interaction on a website called Vintage Detroit reads, quote, The great inventor apparently didn't make much contact if the surviving film is evidence. End quote. So what I'm telling you is that this story that I have loved for many years and I'm retelling you today might not have even happened. Maybe it did. Who knows? It's been retold. Why would it not have happened? But maybe it didn't. As with so many great tales of baseball, the myths and legends that have been built are fantastic. It doesn't matter if it's true. It's still an outstanding baseball story. A new season. A baseball is beginning in just a few days. Thursday is opening day, and I, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Not just because I love baseball, not just because I'm excited about my team, not just because I'm excited to watch highlights and hear from all the players. It's because baseball is a sport that is built on stories, strange interactions, unusual things that occur on the field and off. Since it was created 150 years ago, baseball has been a home to some of the best stories of people and their love of this strange, weird, tense game. That is what makes baseball baseball, whether the stories are true or not. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. I have definitely talked about baseball a lot on this show. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite. If you want to listen to a recent episode about baseball, go listen to the episode about the Havana Sugar Kings, one of my favorite baseball stories ever. I'll include a link in the episode description. Go give that episode a listen. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to give it a five-star review, you can do so on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. It helps the show grow, and it means a lot to me. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget that there is WFM Pod merchandise from my friend Sophie Aparizio at Cast and Clay on Etsy. There is a link in the episode description to go pick up some WFM Pod merch there. All right, that's it for me today. We are in the home stretch of this spring season. Only four episodes left. You are going to love them. Next week, we're going to be talking about wildflowers. It's such a good story. You're going to love it. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water, and enjoy this first week of Major League Baseball. Have a good week. See you next Monday. 